Welcome to Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom, where wisdom comes from everywhere. This is a podcast about generational wisdom shared to help build a bridge for future generations and to build stronger communities through education, technology, and health. Welcome to Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. This podcast was sponsored by Latinas B2B.marketing. You know, today it's hard to understand your clients or your podcast audience without understanding technology. A technology platform is more than just social media. So how do you understand the engagement and also your customers without systems and workflows? So what we do at Latinas B2B.marketing is not just tell you about marketing, we tell you about the technology that helps to improve the engagement and to retain those clients and to serve them better with your products and services. So to learn more, you can go to latinasb2b.marketing and sign up for our newsletter, which has current networking events and our online marketing workshops, as well as one-to-one consulting services that you can sign up for as a business strategy session or to engage with us on a project for your website for your podcast, or to help you create sales and revenue engagement models. Again, that's latinasb2b.marketing. Gracias. Hola, hola. We are heading into the closing of 2024, and I'm so excited to have Patrick Hill as my guest today. He is the CEO of Dystopia. Patrick and I have seen each other a few times at Podcast Movement, networking and talking about podcasting platforms, which really enables us to really communicate with you, just like we're doing today on Squadcast slash Descript. And what we are talking about today with Patrick is his technology experience, his computer science degree, the way he got a job in corporate America, working as a SharePoint guru for Bank of America, and his experience architecting global data solutions enabled him to move into building a platform for content owners. And how he decided to do that was really something that happened to him, was something that happens to all of us is knowing our worth and how we can change and how we can make change in our culture, how we can be present to be represented in a space that is trying to embrace our culture, but we know how to embrace our culture through technology. As I say this in all my podcasts, we hold the most powerful tool in your hand today. You're probably listening to this podcast through it, right now. And so we want to help give the stories that really inspire you to say, I have the experience, I have the knowledge, and I can do this. So let's get started. Again, we're welcoming Patrick Hill of Dystopia, CEO and Executive Director. Hola, Patrick. Welcome, Patrick, to Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. You know, there's a lot of allies in this space, but I always say we have to lock arms and be the allies to our community. And Patrick, I know I've met you a few times through Podcast Movement and talked about your platform, Dystopia, 
how it's a creator platform. But I think in a business, we're always evolving. Things are changing. We're creating more products and services that are going to align to our customers of what they want, how the community reacts to the services or the product that we're providing to them. As a creator platform, it's moving a lot of people's content that's creating data points that I want to say through the internet, but not only that, giving them a safe space that's very different, but it's also very competitive to sources like YouTube and other podcasting platforms, which I think is very interesting. And uh, real quick, before we get started and jump into all the bells and whistles, we want to know more about you. Like, how did you come to this ideation? Because a lot of people want to quit their jobs sometimes. And it's like, can't do that. I don't know how to do that. And, you know, some of us say, I cannot do that. I have to support my family. I have all these things to do. But you moved off the dime to do it. And I want to hear about how that happened from, you know, how you grew up, like motivated you to this point. Well, I came from Jacksonville, North Carolina. And then I went to a small HBCU in Salisbury, North Carolina called Livingstone College, which I graduated in three years. I was like, I got to get out of college. I got to get a job. And I had that what I like to call that uh, golden handcuff mentality, that mentality you were just talking about. You know, I can't quit my job. I really need the money. And sometimes if you ever think to yourself and someone says, hey, I really can't quit my job. The money's really good and it's really too easy. Those are red flags to quit your job. That means you're doing whatever job they're paying you a lot of money to do, which means it's rare and it's very easy to you. So that means you're very smart or very talented. So if you're getting paid a lot of money to do something that comes easy to you, you probably are very gifted and probably should quit your job. So those things happened to me. I was what they call a SharePoint developer for Bank of America. And was, I mean, this came so natural, easy to me. And, uh, you know, back at home, my parents would be like, man, don't you quit that good job. It's a good job. That's Bank of America. <laughs> don't you quit that good job, boy. And after a few years, I stayed there. And then I started my own uh, software development firm. So I was like, okay, one foot in, one foot out, still dealing with big clients, still building their things, not really building nothing on my own. And uh, one day, one of my friends knocked on my door and asked me to burn him a uh, mixtape. And this was 2000, early 2017. And I was like, I'm not burning a mixtape. I'm not making any CDs. Um, I'll make you a website because that was what I do. I had clients. I built websites. I built mobile apps. I built pretty much anything that you couldn't build tech-wise. And I tried to build him a site where he can sell his mixtape with a PayPal button. Simple site, put a PayPal button on it. After it goes through a cycle, it sends them an email. And within like an hour, two hours of releasing it out on Twitter and Facebook at the time, he made 200 and some odd dollars. And I was like, I should do this for everybody. I should let everyone sell digital work the way they want to and get rid of CDs. And so then I sat on that idea for probably two years, maybe. Just, you know, trying it here, trying it there, looking at the competition. And then while I was sitting, this is, and if you remember, this is the rise of Spotify. This is when they were just like, they went from nothing and they were like the biggest thing in Sweden for decades, almost felt like anyway. And in America, it kind of just like, boom, we're here. No one do anything but use us. 
And then this is during the time that uh, Apple purchased Beats and converted it to Apple Music. And so when those two things happened, I said, okay, this is not going anywhere. The stream is alive. Getting a file from point A to point B is going to be the future. And literally before my eyes, I saw like Dropbox and all these tools of getting things from A to B start popping up. And so then I got real serious about it. And so we came up with the name Dystopia in homage of CD, Disc. And we built a site. It only said, if you want further information, please enter your name and your email and hit submit. That's all it did. And I went to South by Southwest, talked to artists. I went to Revolt Music Conference down in Miami, talked to people. And we got like two, 3,000 people to sign up on that newsletter. And then it took like another six, seven months to release. It finally released. And then we were doing good. And then the pandemic hit. And it hits, and it hits hard. And then one thing happened, podcasts, which was been around for years, started really taking off. And people were uploading their podcasts as albums to our platform. And so it was like, no, that's not really what it's used for. You know, we don't do ads. This is music. This is all for the creators. We want creators to get paid. And the podcast business is fairly new, but it's still on an advertising-based business, which is totally different from the music business. The music business is, in its core, whether they get paid fairly or not, in its core is, I give you my music, you give me some money. That is pretty much how it happens. And podcasting is opposite. It's, you listen to my podcast, some third party gives me money to be on my podcast interrupting me while you don't do anything. You just listen. And this other person gives me money for you listening. So music's not like that. You pay to listen, where in podcasts is someone else pays me for you to listen. And I don't think everyone has really like caught that concept yet. Like, does that even make sense for someone else to pay someone else to listen to you? That, and that's how advertising works. So we had to learn that the hard way not being in this business naturally. But luckily we had the pandemic. We had three years to figure it out. Luckily we did. Coming out of the pandemic, we did very well. The podcasting community has really embraced the brand and really embraced us from a technical aspect. And, you know, we're still here. And a lot of people are like, oh man, just don't be, you still doing that? I was like, well, consistency is the key to success. So yeah, I'm, I'm still here. Yeah, that was great. And I love all of that because what I hear and what I want folks out there to understand is that your background sounds like it was in either computer science or it was a business background and that you went to a college. A lot of folks are like, see, I can't do that. I don't have money. I don't know how to code. And as I've said before, you can take certifications that are free. There's a lot of things you can do for coding and building these types of open source or not kind of platforms. So when you went to school and then people say, oh, and here's the big one. I'm not good in math. I have to be good in math to do that, right? And I just want to know from your perspective when you saw this, because you're a SharePoint developer, which if any of you don't know, that's a Microsoft product. God help us with Microsoft now. I mean, to have that background is like big because you can work with big companies that have very secured 
IT systems and you know the complexity of, I think, why you said getting from point A to point B. And if any of you know SharePoint, it is a pain in the ass. So I'm saying it right off the bat. I know it. But this is where you solve problems, right? It's a problem-solving kind of analytical mind you have. So tell us, like, when you were little, is that something that came to you like that? Or was it just like you just found your way? Or you're like, nope, I just want to get that money and then I want to do my thing. <laughs> no, uh, it's a little bit of both. A little bit of both. So when I was growing up, I thought $40,000 was like gold. My like more than gold, like that is king status. Yeah. That lets you know how small of the town I came from. Like anyone making forty thousand dollars a year, oh my goodness, they're the they're one of the richest people in town. So my my only mindset was, look, I'm gonna go to school, I'm gonna get a computer information systems degree, I'm gonna come back home and get a high paying IT job. Didn't matter where it was, and so that was before I left. When I mm-hmm. left, and I have to give it to this one, it's my dad's friend. He, when I was 15 years old, he donated his old computer to my dad. We didn't have a computer at home. Mm. And so that's, so that's the first time I touched a computer. You know, kids are touching computers the second they're born. Like, the mm-hmm. second they pop out, oh, they get a computer. Yeah, so I get we didn't have that luxury. So the first time I touched a computer or like outside of school, I was 15. And... I was like, oh, man, let me just play around with it. So I started playing with it. I broke it, fixed it. I remember installing Bear Share. Mm-hmm. It was this way you can download music. Uh-huh. And it was kind of after Napster because Napster kind of got shut down. And so this was uh-huh. like the next version oh, Napster, of Napster. Uh-huh. And I remember downloading music, putting it on my iPod, putting on CDs, and selling the CDs at school. So that was my very first introduction. And I called myself Petrick. And I put an E in between the P and the A and the E stand for entertainment. And I thought I was going to be this DJ. Nice. So, and so I was coding and downloading <laughs> and making my own programs to make my own mixtapes and stuff like that. And, you know, fast forward to my friend knocking on my door. And the main reason why I said I wasn't doing it, because I was like, yo, I did this like years ago. I'm not going to go back <laughs> to burning CDs. I did that in high school, like middle school. <laughs> like, what are you talking <laughs> about? But that's how I really got started in the computers. And so it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of like that little hustle of just selling CDs, very young at a young, young age, and then just loving computers. There was a teacher named Miss Register. And so I wanted to play basketball the year before I broke my finger so I couldn't try out. And then the next year, I broke my collarbone and I couldn't try out. And then the next year, I got in trouble. I got in real bad trouble. My dad didn't let me try out. So she was like, oh, don't worry about being a basketball team. You can join this uh, computer design class. It's an after-school program. It's for advanced students in computer science. I said, all right, I'll do it. And I won this contest, who can design the best presentation in PowerPoint. And it came with $25. And I won that contest. And I've been in computers in science and technology ever since. I mean, it was just a dream come true since then. And I fast-tracked it. So when I got to Bank of America, I met this guy who's one of my advisors now. He hated SharePoint. He just hated it. Like my third day at Bank of America, first day I had to go like some other building orientation. Second day I had to go to another building for some orientation. Third day is like my first day at my desk. 
And this guy was like, hey, how you doing? I was like, hey, how you doing? He was like, you ready to get started? I was like, sure, what you got for me? He's like, hey, yeah, this thing called SharePoint, I hate it. I need you to figure it out and fix these couple problems. He gave me like a list of like 15 problems that, that he had with SharePoint. <laughs> and like in a couple weeks, I just kind of thumbed my way around it, learned it, fixed all the problems. Um, and then I became like that department's SharePoint guru. And I became the yeah. SharePoint guy. Like, yeah, you need to go talk to that, that SharePoint guy that, a young guy, the, the young whippersnapper they hired, he, he knows all mm. about it. And so one time an executive SharePoint site went down and then I went to his office and I fixed his SharePoint site. And long and behold, it's I got good. promoted to do all his diversity reporting. It was so funny too, because if you did the numbers for them, like if you did the whole company, they mm-hmm. will blow diversity numbers out the water because in certain areas where tellers work, like if a Damn. bank is in a certain part of town, then everyone who works at that bank is going to either be Tina or Black or Asian. So by the sheer numbers in the scale of the company, they were already meeting like 35, 40% diverse. And typically tellers, mm. day and age, no matter where they were, were women. So they were like killing the diversity. And there's this one, and I'm not going to say her name, but she was a person of color. And she was like, she said, why are we counting diversity? We should only count diversity metrics with leadership. That's where it really matters. And boy, mm-hmm. when she ran that number, that, that report was bad. And so that's how he got his job. Exactly. That's how he got his job. He had to report numbers every month and pretty much make people do the right thing and make the diversity numbers and leadership be the reflection of the entire company, which was 35%. Um, and I'm just going to let you know that it happened to the mid-2000s. That's sad. That's when the report mm-hmm. got created. And it's been fluctuating ever since. So less than a decade ago is when companies really, and you probably know this better than I do, you know, it's been about mm-hmm. 10 years when companies actually, I don't even want to say they started fixing it, they at least started paying attention to it. Yeah, because we're talking about it. We're talking about it from a pay equity standpoint. Like, why is it I can't ever get past a bank teller? Or why is it I'm not a branch manager? It's always like, why can't I move up the ranks, right? Oh, well, you know, then there's the conversation. Well, you need X, Y, and Z to be this and a finance background. But if you know the community, okay, I'm just going to say this right off the bat. If you know your community, you know the business owners, you know what they're banking on, that should be your case study to say, I should be the branch manager for this local region because you know all the customers. I'm just going to say this. Everybody that starts on the ground floor like that, you know better than anybody, the customers, the vendors, the interaction, what they're buying, what they're putting into the bank, what they're selling. You know, you have the best And I always think it's such a disservice when it's a top-down organization that they don't see that as like, yes, we want to pull that person up that really is making a change there or they see the initiatives. I mean, it's just crazy to me. That's why good people leave. Anyway, I'm expanding upon this diversity conversation because you fix this man's SharePoint and he is forever grateful and I'm just going to say it again. SharePoint is a pain in the ass, especially when you're like, I don't have time for this BS. I need to get on with my life, right? Instead of looking at files, finding files, 
opening files, locking files. Like that is not my job, right? Like, I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's like some people really like creating pathways to files and locking those. <laughs> yeah, that is like the biggest case. Like, yeah, I put this file in a subfolder, a subfolder, a subfolder, and now I can't get it back out. Like, why would you do that? Oh, my God. Right. Oh, my God. I can't believe we're lamenting about SharePoint. This is not an ad for Microsoft. I just have to laugh because I know the pain. I know the pain. <laughs> but you like that. You figured it out. So let's get back to the executive and his pain that kind of puts you on this path because we're leading up to, you know, getting from point A to point B. Yeah. And so that's what we try to do. Fast forward to the day. That's what we believe. And I don't even, we, we started helping creators. I don't even like saying the word creative anymore. I like to say content owners because somewhere in the last four years, people have blurred the line between artists and content creative. Like, oh, I post the picture of my son on Instagram. Oh, you're a content creator. No, I just posted a picture of my son. And there is a certain art to podcasting. There's a certain art to R&B music. There's a certain art to jazz. There's a certain art to talk show hosts. There's a reason why some are good and some are great. And so I think that the line got blurred between content creator, because I post a silly video on TikTok, versus I went in the studio for 100 hours and perfected this craft of speaking into a microphone, or I went to a thousand hours of Juilliard to understand the sounds of a trumpet. So when we started doing the analysis here, we said like, let's just say content owner, because I don't want to be disrespectful to the people who put in the hours, the hours and hours to learn something or even to do something or just naturally in podcasts for three years. That's why I'm so good at it. Or that's why I'm number three true crime podcast. Yada, yada. So I said, own content, I want to help you get it from point A to point B. And if you choose to help you monetize it, that is where we started from, from a friend knocking on that door and wanted to get his music out to people uploading podcasts in Estopia to now corporations saying, hey, I really need to be able to get my message out on SharePoint, but I want to do it in a podcast format. So those are the three avenues that we specialize in or that we serve, really. And it's it's growing. I tell people the content or creator is growing just because of the natural evolution of human beings. We started out with feathers and pins, typewriters, or before even typewriters and feathers and pins were on stone tablets, apparently. And then we went to email. Now we're getting to, you know, audio, audio and video. Like, the kids now, when they call, it's all FaceTime. It's not like put a phone up to your ear and listen and try to imagine what the other person is saying or doing. And you remember you had to write letters decades and decades ago. People communicated with mail and that got faster. And then it came with this thing called electronic mail. Oh, I can send a message in two seconds. Or, you know, I can call someone and hear their voice. And so when we think about communication and creative communication, and that's what a podcast is to me, how do we get that from what we're doing now to the millions of people that love this show, Latinas from the Block, you know? So that is where we are trying to perfect and serve at the same time. And that could be, you know, it's a challenge, but, you know. 
Yeah, it is a challenge. I mean, people don't realize that, yes, your dreams, you can execute on them. How do you do it? Like, what's the first step, right? Well, if we're going to get into some business terms so that you can understand a little bit more about how to execute against or with your dream, right? Because it's like everyone has a dream. Everyone's like, oh, I wish I could do this. As we started earlier, like what made you leave your job after your parents told you, no, this is where you're going to live for 30 years and make a good income and support your family? Because a lot of, you know, first gen and a lot of community members, right? When you get into that good job, you're the first person that got that education. You're the first person that got that six-figure job or the job with benefits. And it's like, no, you're not going to leave that. And so that's a, an incredible amount of pressure on your shoulders, right? Because then you're like, like you said, a golden handcuff, but it's not to the company, it's to the family, right? And it's like, wow, how much more sacrificing do I have to do? But what if I can innovate an industry or change a business or an industry because I have all these good ideas because I am working for this company that has built their money off the backs and labor of people of color and they are making millions of dollars. And that's not my goal in life. My goal is to build and distribute wealth amongst communities of color. That's a different mindset because if our dreams were allowed to flourish, I really feel in that capacity with the structure that is built for us, not by us, that would be a whole different mindset and shift for us to really lift a lot of poverty in my mind. There's a lot of people out there that want to do this, but they're beholden to this system. And so, you know, I know that was a little like big thought there, but we're talking about big thoughts here because I want people to think bigger, right? Like you said, $40,000 was a big amount of money to me. But now it's like, no, there's more. There's like way more, right? And it's about distribution of wealth, right? Because it goes back into the community. It goes back in building a legacy for your family. It goes into hiring people, you know, the people that want to see this succeed, right? I mean, this is how it all gets started. And you're preserving art of the community. That's what I like to say, which is why you're on the show. And I want to start from the innovation aspect because innovation is a big topic. It's so hard and people don't understand what does it mean, right? So tell me, what does innovation mean to you, Patrick? Well, in very simple terms, it's not doing what someone else is doing. That's not. That's not innovation. So like right now, everyone's AI, AI. If I see one more platform says, we have transcripts with AI. Like that's not news. I mean, it's so funny what they call it news. It's like, that's news, but giving people free accounts to do their own free content is not news. No, free accounts is news. It's news to me. But right now, innovation really truly means to me, if you can develop something that's not necessarily disruptive because that's the thing, especially with VCs. And as you know, in business, it has to be disruptive. You know, we don't want a brand new grass seed. We want a brand new grass seed that only grows three inches. That's disruptive. So you never have to cut your grass again. And I was like, is that even realistic? Is it possible? Probably if someone sat in a lab for 15 years. But we also have to stop throwing out the word disruptive 
because people actually like the way their lives are. They just want them better. They just want them smoother. They just want them less complex. So that is, to me, innovation. When you can make my life smoother, healthier, economic, efficient, less complex, those are the ways that I want to innovate life. I don't want to be the guy that said, you know what, I'm going to develop a strand of DNA so that my hair grows exactly four inches. Like, that's, you know, okay, your hair is four inches now. Great. Yeah, but then that would wipe out a whole industry of barbers. So this is where innovation and, you know, we're talking about change and disruption. That would put a lot of people out of business, right? It's like we're always at this contradiction of what people want. So with the innovation piece, like you said, don't do what other people want. This is what's really important is to find out who your target, not even your target audience, because that just makes you sound like I'm really hunting people. But it's like who your base is. What is it that those people want? How do you know what they want? I mean, I think you knew early on by the burning discs in middle school and content creators and then ownership. And you saw all this movement. But what was it like? Did you do actual research and did you create because you do have to do some research in the market to make sure that a product is viable, right? Or that you can even get it off the ground. So did you do a lot of research or did you just do community outreach research? I mean, how did you come up with like, this is really going to work besides kind of doing it over like a few decades? <laughs> well, like I said, when I got the first idea, I didn't jump on it and be like, oh my God, let me get my business plan together. Let me get my pitch deck together. Because honestly, coming where I come from, that's a whole new thing I had to learn too. Like, you know, you got to pitch. You got to do a business plan. You got to do business planning. You got to do business financing. You got to understand a marketing plan and all those other things. So, you know, most times in my community, that's a whole new skill set as well. So what I did was I kind of watched, you know, I try to tell people, especially in social media, 85% of them are followers. There's another 10% that just observe. And that, I mean, there's a 5% that observe and another 10% that lead. I try to be in that 5% of observing. And what I did observe, like I said earlier, is, well, who's already doing this in the market and what do they do to get where they are? And so that's when I studied the band camps. I studied the tune cores and the CD babies. And these are like grandfathers in that industry. It's like, well, they're still around. And believe it or not, CD baby is still surviving off like, you know, 200 and some odd thousand customers still pre-ordering CDs. If you think about like 200,000 people giving you 10 bucks a month, that's a viable business. And that's another thing too. I want to tell people, it's like sometimes especially like in your area in San Francisco, they get caught in a $100 million deal and they forget the guy that owns just three gas stations who makes $750,000 a year profit and all his kids go to private school and they all go to Stanford and they're going to go there scot-free and then meet someone else and then become something else and become something else. Sometimes coming from the trailer park and making $750,000, not only you take one step ahead, you took 300 steps ahead. And so that might have been your task in the universe is to say, hey, just get us out. And once we're out, let the universe take care of the rest. 
think as entrepreneurs, we get caught in that hundred million dollars. I got to make a hundred million dollars. I got to, I got to do this, I got that. And as I'm getting older, I realize that it's not about the hundred million dollars. It might just be about two or three million dollars that I need to secure so that my son has more opportunities or options. I like to say we want to get we want to give more options to our community because a lot of times we don't have a lot of options. You know, as the old hip hop says, would go, you either selling crack rock or you got a wicked jump shop. That's two options. I can't live with two options. I need more options. Give me more. You know, those are the only two I got. What if I can't play basketball? I guess I got to sell drugs. Exactly. It's like the options and the opportunities, right? So that's why, you know, Bank of America, like, let's go back to that. When you got the job, it was like their community, quote unquote, focused. You know, they provide all this business training now to people that want to start and they work with the Chamber of Commerce, you know, in the local area. It's all about getting involved in the community. Did you do any of that before, you know, you got into this? Yeah, I was in everything. So credit to Charlotte's ecosystem. It was the little engine that could. I went to every little startup meeting, every little entrepreneurship meeting, got in like little small business incubators, which, like I said, being in Charlotte, it was a little engine that could. Clearly, if you're in New York, Chicago, or San Francisco, those incubators, those business programs, those startups, I mean, those meetups are, for lack of better terms, a little more valuable. Then in, at that time, a city of Charlotte, even Atlanta was doing a little bit better. Miami was doing a little better. I think even Raleigh Durham was doing a little better than Charlotte and its entrepreneurial ecosystem. But to your point earlier, and one of our earlier conversations at Podcast Movement is, sometimes the city will build the ecosystem and then our community must infiltrate that ecosystem even at the cost of building our own ecosystem. And that's been proven time over time over time where communities will have to build their own grocery store, build their own doctor's office, become their own lawyers because they have to serve their community in a ecosystem where they've been shut out. And so that has been in technology for decades. And we have still have not cracked that code in technology. That is an ecosystem where we cannot crack that code and now we're building our own community, that ecosystem. And it's so sad because even in technology, we don't even trust our own community within that ecosystem. And like, you've heard of like Black Twitter. Oh, Black Twitter helped build Twitter in its infancy stage. And now there's a new app called Spill and the Spill app. And shout out to those guys, his two brothers that built this this social media network and a safe space for everyone. And they're funded. I think they got about three or four, something like three or four or $5 million, somewhere between that three and $5 million range. And the black and brown community still does not trust that technology to leave the current institutions that are in play, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And you've seen this in your endeavors where a black or brown community, they will build something solid. It's not perfect, but it's solid enough to get the job done. And I'm talking about purely tech here. Like, I'm assuming we've gotten better with black doctors and, you know, black lawyers, and we'll trust that system a little bit better now. But in technology, we have not built that on trust. It's like, is this where everyone is? Is it about where everyone is? Well, if you come here, then everyone else will come here and then it'll be your own. Because 
what I don't like is complaining about a certain ecosystem or community when you're still there. Sometimes you have to leave the room to go to another room to feel safe or to have a space. That's the same thing in technology. It's like, so like you said, if SharePoint isn't doing it for you, maybe you go to Google Suite. Maybe you go to this other thing. Maybe you go to this other place where things are less complex and more easier for you. But honestly, and the question is, would you invest your dollar in a black or brown technology product that does the exact same thing that the institutional product does? And that's a question you have to ask yourself. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, that's why I created this platform because I'm all there with you, Patrick, because I said, you know what? I can't make a change inside Google and Facebook or, you know, all the other big organizations that I worked at in Silicon Valley because they don't want to hear little Teresa chirping about certain things. Or it's like I have to code switch and be this person that I, you know, have been doing my whole life to adapt that got me in there. But, you know, there's a hard mentality there to, of code switching and adaptation. And there's a lot to unpack there. And I don't, that's not about this podcast today. But what I'm saying is when I saw for real what happened in 2016 and how technology played a big part of that, and it just continued and I started to do more deep dive. And then I'm like, well, I want to know more. And I just said, no, I want to come outside the box and lift outside the box and create change because that is systemic mindset that has been there forever. But if we do what you're saying is, you know, we create our platforms and we do this and we kind of sustain or build on top and we help the community in ways that are going to sustain us further or give us what we need because no one's listening in there, right? does start to create mind shift. And that's, I think, what we're talking about here. I mean, is that correct? Yes. The one thing that we, like, we talk about golden handcuffs, the one mind shift, and just go back to that, expound on that question, is like, well, what made you want to break the golden handcuff? Is when I walked in and saw a Microsoft consultant not knowing the same skill set that I knew, but getting paid five times more. I was like, you know what? I'm out of here. And it's all about the creator, especially in music. Music was still bad, but music was real bad with paying people fairly. It's getting better. It's not where it needs to be, but it was getting better. So that was a bit of the mind. It was like, look, I was working a job where I didn't get paid fairly for my skill set. A lot of independent creators are doing their own job and not getting paid fairly or not getting paid what they want. Music and podcasts and digital creation in a whole is one of the most downplayed art forms to men. If I wanted to paint your living room, Right now, I can name whatever price I want it. I can make $10,000 per wall. And it's up to you as a consumer to accept that job of what I want to do. Artists do not get to dictate their price for their music. Podcasters do not get to dictate their price for CPMs. It's industry standard. Your CPM is two cents. And creators in, in a whole does, do not get to dictate the price for their content. And so that is where the disruption, the innovation, and the look like, look, guys, let's, can we be fair? Let's have a conversation. How do you pay someone fairly? Well, you like take their own price. And if they sell it, they sell it. If they don't, then they'll understand the economics of what's valuable and what's not. You're only as valuable as what someone's willing to pay for it. So that is where that mindset comes in about 
not only just creating a space where people feel free to set their own prices, but also creating that space where they can earn what they believe is their true value. And that's really what quitting that job and breaking those handcuffs is. If once you understand your true value to an economic system or to a community, that is when you are really, truly free to do what you want to do. And you have to figure that out. Yeah. And so when we talk about innovation, Patrick, you've done a lot of the due diligence and the footwork. But let's talk about funding because funding is a big issue that we never get. We don't get those dollars. And yet we're putting money out because of something we believe in truly with our hearts and soul. And we know it is a thing, right, for our community when we are passionate and behind something and we want to bring folks with us and people are on board, there's no stopping. So the funding, right? Why do you think funding has been so hard? But how did you get your first funding? I mean, because some people say, oh, you know, friends and family, you know, ask friends and family. Look, excuse me. Our friends and family are, are barely making it. And when we decide to step and when you're the only one that's really making the money, yeah, they might give you a few bucks here and there. Like we're talking below $100 for GoFundMe. But it's like we're talking big dollars, right? Because it does take a lot of money to get started. So tell me. Yeah, so funding is really hard. And I'm not even going to sugarcoat that one bit. The main thing is knowledge. I honestly, truly believe I did not know how or where money was supposed to be. When they say, oh, yeah, there's lots of money out there, even in bad economic times, just look in a different door. You know, you look behind a different door. When when the economy's good, you can look behind one door. When it's really bad, you look behind another door. And what I've really learned over the last year is that I did not understand grant funding. I did not understand SBA funding. I did not understand business financing. And I did not understand uh, how many people you have to meet outside of your friends and family to secure funding. And you have to knock on those doors. Like there is no if and else about it. You got to go and knock down the doors to pretty much say, hey, this is what I have. This is what I believe. And I wouldn't waste time with people either. Do you believe in it? Yes or no? Okay, no, you don't. Thank you for your time. Moving on. Hey, do you believe in this? Yes or no? Okay, thank you for your time. Moving on. Because you don't want to like kind of sit and stew in negativity for one and two. If you believe in something and you have, you know, the proper things lined out, you have a proper plan, then stick with it, have the consistency. But the institutions that are in place at the current moment are not necessarily structured for women to get funding and people of color to get funding. One is because of pure knowledge. The book has been hidden. The book is starting to open up of how to get those things. and we're starting to take notice and do that things. But VC funding is still historically low when it comes to one, women funding, and then people of color funding. It's like a double strike. If you're a woman of color, you got to knock down twice. And so there has been a lot of initiatives of like, oh, we want to invest in women founders. We want to invest in people of uh, color founders and things like that. But they don't understand that there are so many of us fighting for one slice. Like, and it's a thin slice of the pie. And it's like, honestly, it's a great effort. 
how in the world are 4,000 people going to eat off one slice of pie? And if they do, everyone's getting two grand. And we know that two grand is not a proper way to scale a business. And, and kudos to Charlotte. They've tried. They've done a lot of different things to get people grants. They've done a lot of different things to get people funding. And when it comes to people of color, it's always like, well, here, take this 15000 And they're like, well, did you read my business plan? Well, no, you're okay. Take the 15000 But my business plan is literally a food truck. Like, the 15000 is really just to cover the food truck. How am I going to have the food and the gas and the marketing and the, and the IP and the trademark and the website and the social media? Yes, I can cook great, but I was like, I was trying to, and on the, honestly, a food truck is very small. That's a small scale startup business. Like you should be able to start a food truck with $200,000 and do very well. But we're talking about big business here. We're talking about technology and I'm in the technology space. So people of color and especially women founders are never really funded at all. Or if they're funded, they're like, and shout out to Sierra, Sierra May, she has a technology platform where you can kind of recycle your hair and you can like send back your hair in this nice recyclable bag and the technology kind of pulls the strands and it kind of repurposes it and then gives it to someone who actually needs hair or wig. But the technology behind that is what she invented. But they only, they only invested in her because it's a trust factor. We still are dealing with microaggressions and micromanagement because of trust. I trust to give her a million dollars because who else knows about black women's hair but a black woman? Like, she is it possible for her to fail? But when a black woman says, no, I want to do something in uh, radiation, it won't. Like, are you sure you know about radiation? No, we don't know about that. It's just like, what was the lady's name who kind of fooled all the VCs and she's serving prison time for it now? Uh, Oh, Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, because she was a white lady that snowballed everybody. And they're like, oh, my God. Wow, that's fantastic. Let's do it. Here's 10 million, 50 million. How much money do you need? Just like, oh, you know, it's just snowball, right? It's like, uh, I don't know how much money, you know, we need to see being burned by their own community before they start to realize investing in us is going to save a lot of people, a lot of pain. It actually will probably save the world, in my opinion, if you look at the green economy in tech. And you're going to be investing in a whole other community that's going to elevate, I want to say, the economy of the entire United States. It's just so ridiculous to me. And there's so many reports. And so with that, I want to ask you, Patrick, because this is where the game changed for you in a lot of ways is that you did get some money. You did start to scale the business. But not only that, and this is really important, people, you got your IP, which is intellectual property of your business, patented. And that is no small feat. That takes money and that takes innovation. So share a little bit about this. Yeah, and especially in technology, it literally is the value proposition 
when you are trying to, one, get financing, which I learned, two, to get VCs interest. So it is the only value proposition because in software, what I code, you can code. And what they can code, everyone can code. But what they cannot code is a process that is protected. When you've come up with a process that does something more efficient, removes complexity, gives you more effectiveness to do anything, that process that you invented, is innovation, and in that process should be protected at all costs. Now, there's two types of protection. So, for instance, if you love Krispy Kremes, like Krispy Kreme donuts, like that formula, they didn't want to patent that formula because they didn't want everyone to know their secret recipe. So literally like 12 people know the recipe. And the only reason I know that is because Krispy Kreme was founded in Charlotte, and so the headquarters are here. I don't know if they, the first one was here. But they always talk about how they have the formula locked up in a safe and only certain people can get to the formula and what they ship out is like blank bags of dough like with no ingredients on it but just instructions of how to make it but you really need your patents you need your ip especially in the age of influence and i say that because in the age of influence brands make money. And if your brand is not protected, i.e. trademark, or your process is not protected, and information flies today. I mean, it flew 20 years ago, but it really flies today. You could have one customer today and 10 million customers tomorrow because of the internet or because of social media or because of just word of mouth is not what it used to be where it takes time to build on to something. So having that process patented and ready to go because Tuesday you had Mama and them buying a shirt and Friday Beyonce found your shirt online because the stylist found it online because her cousin wore it at a family reunion that your mom attended. That's literally how stuff happens. And then it goes 10 million people and your stuff is not protected. Now everybody on the internet is calling up Etsy, reprinting your property. So you have to have things protected in a manner because as Fat Joe would say, yesterday's price is not today's price. You know, he said it in terms of like, look, you know, that, that was yesterday, but I'm going to use it in terms of patents. Like you perfected your product, you perfected your service, you, you've built your brand. That was yesterday. Anything can happen between yesterday and today. And you do not want to be unprepared for tomorrow because he might say, to, let me tell you what's the big difference. Yesterday's price is not tomorrow's price. And depending on how you patent yourself, your price can go down or it can go up. So I think I should take that. Yesterday's price is definitely not tomorrow's price because I'm going to patent my stuff today and therefore tomorrow I can charge another price for it or even sell it or license it, especially technology. There's been many examples where companies have struggled in technology, struggled, struggled, and then another bigger company uses that process in a small department and gets found out about it and then they have to license that process in those bigger companies. And next, you know, that startup that was in the negative, in the red, bleeding, now has a million dollar month licensing fee for software that they don't have to perfect no more because they created a process that another big company is using and they don't want to look like the bad guys. So it is what it is. So if anything you learned from this podcast is trademarks and patents are two different things. You need both. 
It's one for the brand because we live in a social media era as a current juncture and one for the process because you want to protect something that you develop and innovated, especially in technology. Yeah. I mean, that's a full mic drop. It's seriously. I mean, that's so important. My logo for Latinas from the block to the boardroom, I could not get the term trademarked, but I got the logo trademarked. So any of you that are thinking about doing the logo, just forget about it. Unless you want to license it from me because I got it trademarked. And, you know, the next thing is I do IP and it's, it costs money, people. It costs money. But you know what? When you get trademarked and all that, I know it's not a big thing, but it goes into the Library of Congress. And do you know, like, that lives forever. So if, if your family, like, when you go beyond, right, into the ether, the legacy you leave behind, like for Patrick, you know, his grandkids' grandkids are like, what? My grand, my great-great-grandpa created this platform and it's like all the stuff is there. You know what I mean? It just kind of lives beyond you. It's kind of a weird thing, but I think that's kind of neat. You know what I mean? No, it's, it's, it's real. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only way to live forever is to create a legacy. You have to create, and, and you don't have to create this worldwide legacy. Like you don't have to be the king of pop, but like you said, you definitely want to be well known within your community or your family at least. And that's the only way to create a legacy um, and having a legacy. It's representation. It's representation, too. And, you know, the sad thing is that we talk about it now as the most important thing. And a lot of people in the past, right, that have created movements, have been the first in a lot of things. And I've said this in prior podcasts. Their stories are just coming out now, right, that we're finding out. And now telling our story and the narrative and sharing right now is such a big moment, right, for us. And I think that's great. And I loved having you, Patrick, on this show and telling me about your story and how you got to Dystopia now being not just a creator platform, but also a content ownership platform, which I think is the bottom line here. And if you want to know more about Dystopia, you can go to their website at Dystopia. And that's D-I-S-C-T-O-P-I-A dot com. And you can learn more information about their platform. If you'd like more information from Patrick, you can reach out to him through LinkedIn at Patrick Hill. And also you can find them on Instagram at Dystopia to follow them and also their other social media handles, which you can find on their website. So, Patrick, I just want to wrap it up here. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with besides protecting your assets here? <laughs> um, I always tell people short form gets you noticed, long form gets you paid. So always remember that. Yep. And we want to also know more about, you know, the product maybe in the future through a webinar. So stay tuned for that. Sign up for our newsletter at latinasb2b.com. And you can stay informed about when that webinar will happen so you can get more business tips and go beyond this podcast to learn and build the community as we were talking about as an ecosystem, because we all need to kind of, you know, start looking at each other in ways of collaboration and start building trust. So we hope we've provided that with you today. And thank you, Patrick, for joining me today on Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. Thank you. Talk to you soon. 
thank you, Patrick, for joining me today on Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. If you'd like to learn more about Dystopia, you can follow them on Instagram at Dystopia, that's D-I-S-C-T-O-P-I-A, or you can reach out to him at LinkedIn at Patrick Hill, CEO of Dystopia. This podcast was sponsored by Latinas B2B.marketing. This podcast was sponsored by Latinas B2B.marketing. If you'd like to understand more about how technology can enable your business and also to engage your audience, please go to Latinas B2B.marketing and sign up for our newsletter where we'll be hosting information about current online workshops, and also networking events in your area. This podcast was produced by Teresa E. Gonzalez and audio engineered and produced by Robert Lopez. If you'd like more information about audio production, please reach out to Robert Lopez at rob at crates Gracias.